You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Greater than the power and destruction of a volcanic eruption. It's the power that can not only destroy, it's the power that can redeem. See, it's the power that can make beauty from ashes, even volcanic ashes. It's the power that can take a dry, barren stump and make it green, vibrant, and fruitful, as we learned last week. It's a power that can bring new life from death and destruction. Friends, that is a power of a whole different kind. See, the devil has the power to destroy and kill. It's a power given to him for a time and season by God. But he cannot create life from death. He cannot transform and take that which is evil and turn it to good. We're talking about a power that not only can neutralize an enemy, but can turn him into an ally. A power that can take a terrorist bent on evil and make him an ambassador of peace. That's the type of power we're talking about this morning. It's the power of transformation. It's the power of conversion. And that power belongs to God and God alone. And it's a power that he lovingly wields for his glory as he seeks and saves the lost, even his greatest enemies. This morning's, really its whole theme, the major point can be summed up this way on the screen. Jesus alone can transform even his greatest enemies into his gospel servants. With that in mind, let's pray. Well, dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would enable us to remember afresh your power. For Lord, we are so often a forgetful people. Lord, remind us anew this morning of your transforming power and grace in our very lives. But Lord, we ask as well that you would stir us. Oh, stir us to believe that you can and will do the same for those around us. Lord, encourage this morning. Mobilize your people this morning and draw each and every one of us to our Savior, oh Lord. That we may be a people ready to do your will and to be on mission with the gospel. Amen. Well, amen. Well, church, I really have one point this morning. You've already heard it. It's a main theme. Jesus alone can transform even his greatest enemies into gospel servants. Amen. We're going to unpack that this morning. We're going to talk about the implication for us as believers this morning as well on the back end. But I want to land here for a while and unpack this truth. You see, this morning we have a case study. And our case study is name Saul. That was his Hebrew name. After his conversion, he was usually referred to as Paul, his Roman name. What this really connotes or communicates is Saul's call and his conversion to be a messenger, to be an apostle, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles from Saul to Paul. This is what I want to know. And this is the story that we have before us. How did Saul 
become Paul. That's our story. In fact, it's one of the greatest stories in the entire book of Acts. In fact, it's so important that it's told three different times, right here in Acts 9, as well as Acts 22 and Acts 26. Well, as I mentioned, our sermon series is entitled Shockwaves. And this whole book, this book of Acts, is about the seismic advance, the seismic spread of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, to the Gentiles. And the theme of our book, if you recall, is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We'll put it on the screen for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and here we go, and to the end of the earth. Think Gentiles. So far through the first eight chapters, so we've covered this advance of the gospel in Jerusalem, going out to Judea, into Samaria, the Samaritans, and now we're beginning with chapter nine. We're preparing for the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles, and God is preparing one man in particular to lead the way. That's Saul, who he's gonna convert into Paul, a messenger and ambassador of the gospel. But as we come to Acts 9, there's only one slight problem. You see, Saul is not proclaiming Christ. No, he's blaspheming Christ. He is persecuting Christ. He is an enemy of the gospel. With that in mind, let us read and pick up verse 1 of Acts 9. I'm going to read this first half of our narrative, Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Who exactly was this Saul that we just read about? Well, you may recall, he is the same Saul that was present at the stoning of Stephen back in Acts 7. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. But Saul just wasn't there present. He was the one approving of his execution. And now we learn in the very first verse of Acts 9 that Saul now has permission from the high priest to carry out his arrest and persecution among multitudes, multiple Stephens. Couple Paul's authority with this unbridled zeal and misguided zeal, and you have a Molotov cocktail. Cocktail. You have an explosion waiting to happen. In other words, you have a terrorist of first magnitude, a man willing to kill any infidel in the name of his God, both men 
and women alike. Read with me, going back one chapter, chapter Acts, verse three on the screen. We read this about Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See that word ravaging? That connotes, literally means that he's destroying the church like a wild bull or a wild boar, that is. He's a beast. Acts 9.1 says literally he's breathing out threats and murder. I think you get the picture. This was no tame man. But Paul just wasn't content just simply to find and kill Christians. He says later in his other testimony, we find in Acts 26, that he went seeking them in, quote, raging fury, even to foreign cities. And that's what we find our Saul in our text today, tracking down fugitives to the city of Damascus. Damascus was about 150 miles from Jerusalem, about a week's journey. Like a ring wraith in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Paul is on his black horse, rampaging through shire, forests, and towns, always on the move. A soulless creature, always on the move, but never at rest. That's the picture we get of Saul in our story today. Yet, yet on the outskirts of Damascus, God brings this lost, this proud, this wild man to his knees, to licking dust on the desert floor. Saul, the grand inquisitor, is put on trial by Jesus himself. And Saul and his companions, his cadre, they're speechless. The very one who was on his way, catch the irony, to arrest Christians is arrested by none other than Jesus. And he's led helpless, humbled, and as a convicted blind man to the town of Damascus, church transformation oh, has begun. This enemy on the loose is now a prisoner of war of Jesus, and he's about to become an ally in Christ's spiritual mission. How does that happen? How does transformation happen? How did it happen in Saul's life? How does it happen in our life? I believe it happens in the same way. Jesus reveals himself to us. We surrender in repentance and faith, and we submit our life to his call upon our lives. You may read this story, and I'm quite aware. You've probably read it before. And you read it as a great story. But <laughs> this Damascus Road experience of Saul, I, I can't relate. I, that's not my story. And I will admit, of course, that this experience was in many ways historically unique. And we may not be able to relate to all the outwardly dramatic events that Saul experienced. But friends, it does not make your conversion any less authentic. For every person right now who's listening, who is a Christian, has had, has had his or her wild heart tamed by Jesus and placed in service to his name. 
we were all once enemies of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We were enemies of God, enemies of Christ, until, until Jesus revealed himself to us as the Son of God, God in the flesh, who lived and died, yes, for sinners like us. When Paul later recounted his testimony to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 1, he says this, I received the gospel, quote, through a revelation, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see in our story this morning on the road to Damascus. Look at verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. I have little doubt, church, that what is being described here is nothing less than the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's the glory of the risen. It's the glory of the enthroned Jesus. And God is giving Saul a taste of his glory, not in the temple, not in Jerusalem, but in the person of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Oh, that's significant. It's significant here in the book of Acts. God reveals his glory not in a place alone, but in a person. And that person is Jesus. The desert son of the Middle East is nothing compared to the brilliance of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The same Saul, Paul, later wrote to a church in Corinth. We find these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Here it is. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. I have little doubt that Paul was thinking about his Damascus Road experience when he penned those words. But this glory of God didn't just appear what else happens? Oh, he speaks. Oh, he speaks. Jesus, the glory of God, speaks to Saul. And we read in verse four, look at it. And falling to the ground, yeah, it's power. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus addresses Saul by name twice. He knows exactly who Saul is. Although Saul is clueless regarding who the identity of Christ, all of Saul's studying, all of his fastidious attention to the law and to the word of God, and Saul is clueless. All the scripture which he knew, which he had memorized, which is fulfilled and points to Christ the Savior, and he had missed it. He had missed him who now is calling his name. The Jewish Harvard graduate the one who referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews was clueless. And in verse five, he, that Saul said, who are you, Lord? The word Lord simply means sir, master. Who are you, master? Who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus wants Saul to know that his murderous threats and actions were against him, his very body. Yeah, the church. 
And this is personal. Oh, this is deeply personal. Church, all sin is deeply personal against our holy God. But I also think Jesus wants Saul to know something else as well. And it's this, that Jesus had been personally pursuing him long before this Damascus Road encounter. When Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? We know, right? Christ already knows the answer. He knows the heart of every man and woman. What I believe he's doing is this. He is appealing to Saul's very conscience, his agitated and disturbed conscience. How can I say that? Well, it's interesting. When Paul later relays his testimony in Acts chapter 26, he adds these words. We're going to put it on the screen so we can see it. Acts 26, verse 14. Paul retelling this wonderful story that we have in Acts 9. He says this. And when we had fallen, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here it is. This is the new edition. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's goads, not goats, as I always thought growing up as a young kid, okay? He's not talking about farm animals. What is he talking about? What is a goad? We'll put a picture on the screen for you. Let me explain. A goad is a long rod that a farmer uses to tame a wild bull or animal. Here we go. The implication is this, that Jesus was pursuing, Jesus was prodding, Jesus had been pricking Saul and he was futilely resisting. I did put a photo here of a goat. Now, I wanted to see what it looked like for myself. Pulled it from the internet. Supposedly, this is actually an elephant goad used in India. Don't know if this hook is a little bonus feature here, but church, I think you get the point. Part, part in the pun. This is what Jesus was using, metaphorically speaking, to prod and to pursue Saul. And this is why it said he was fitly resisting. He was kicking against Christ, divine goads in his life. We don't know what those goads were, but it's not too hard to imagine. Surely Saul had heard the stories of Jesus. I mean, think about it. He was a contemporary of Jesus, might have been around the same age. He may have even seen or heard Jesus. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is this, that Saul was there when Stephen was executed. And Saul saw Stephen gaze up into heaven where we're told that his face shone like an angel. Saul was there. Saul was there to hear the soul-piercing cries when Stephen was about to be stoned to death. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoing the words of Christ on the cross as Stephen was stoned to death. Oh, Saul was there. Saul saw. Saul heard. How could Saul explain Stephen's confidence? How could Saul explain such boldness, such utter lack of fear? But not just that. How could Saul explain Stephen's love? Even 
for his enemies in the face of death. How could Stephen, how could he explain Stephen's wisdom that he displayed in that wonderful speech given to the Jewish leaders in Acts 7? How do you explain his wisdom? How could Paul, the one who described himself as faultless and blameless before the law, how could he account for his own guilty conscience? I agree with John Stott in his commentary. He makes this point. That Saul's conversion was neither sudden nor compulsive. I believe what we're reading here in Acts 9 in these several verses was likely the culmination of years of doubt that dogged and plagued and convicted Saul. The greater the doubts, the greater the kicking against Christ's divine prodding. You see, when Christ looks down at the fallen Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I, I don't think Saul, excuse me, I don't think Jesus is shaming Saul. That's what I would have done. I don't believe Christ was doing that, church. I believe that he was revealing himself, his sovereign, his patient, his prodding mercy and saying, Saul, it's been me all along. It's been me the whole time. Reflecting upon his conversion, Paul later says really his remarkable words to his disciple Timothy when he writes to him in 1 Timothy 1.13, as we'll see. I'm going to read verses 13, part of 13 and 16 to make the point. Paul says this, I was, speaking of his former life as Saul, I was a blasphemer, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Yeah, enemy of Christ. But look at verse 16. Oh, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, means foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Oh, it's perfect patience. Thank God for his perfect patience. I think we can often forget, can't we, of the patience of our Lord Jesus towards us as we look back at the story of our life. You know what else? We can also lack patience too as we reach out and we pray for those who are unsaved, those who are Saul's in our life. Why is that so? I think it's so because we often can't see what Christ is doing. We often can't see his patient prodding in the lives of other people. Their doubts are often masked by fierce opposition to anything or anyone Christian as they kick against the goads. Maybe that's your story. Maybe that's been you. Maybe that's your testimony. In some ways, it's all of our testimony, is it not? Maybe it's you right now. You're still kicking. And I don't know for sure how you got to tune into this Facebook Live broadcast, but I'm so glad you're here. I just want to tell you, Jesus is alive. And you say, well, I can't see him. And if he's alive, what's he doing? Well, I tell you what he's doing. You may not be able to see him, but I bet you can feel him. Oh, he's pursuing. He's prodding. He's prodding you in his patient mercy. 
because he wants to display his transforming power in you. If that's you this morning, oh, here's my plea. Surrender and finally submit to Jesus. In church, don't grow discouraged. Don't grow, don't grow weary because you fail to see the work of God in the lives of those you love, of the lives of those you've been praying for. Maybe, just maybe, their harsh words are rejection of you betrays the secret doubts that they have been harboring for a long time. They act that way towards you because you represent Christ to them, the one who is patiently pursuing, pricking, and prodding to bring them to repentance and faith, oh, to salvation. Christ's sovereign and patient mercy tells us that there's more than meets our eye. Oh, there's always more to the story, friends. There's more than meets the eye. And there's more to this story as well. We're about to read the latter part of the story. And here we're going to receive and hear of Saul's commission, verse 15. And we're going to see evidence now of his true conversion. But as I'm about to read this, I want you to hear something. I want you to notice something as we read on. While Jesus alone saves, Jesus alone converts, Jesus alone commissions us into his service, Jesus does not work alone. He calls you and me to join him. With that in mind, let us pick up with verse 10 of chapter 9. We've got a, a bit to read. Stay with me. This is good stuff. Now, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen instrument. Here's the commission of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Oh, transformation, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And here's the wonderful summary statement, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Friends, when we read this rest of the story, what do we see? We see the journey of an unsaved Saul to the Apostle Paul. We see a conversion that involved many people. Oh, it was difficult. It was hard. It was hairy. <laughs> it was messy. And it took people. Transformation takes other people. Why? Because the conversion that we're talking about to Christ is not just a conversion of one's purpose in life or will. It's also about a change in family, too. A new spiritual family. And that family is called the church, Christ's very body. And what's so amazing about this whole story is not just, not only Saul's salvation, but his inclusion into the body of Christ and his acceptance of all the other believers. And this narrative labors to show that. Enter Ananias, who first went to Saul and undoubtedly explained the gospel to him more fully. Enter the unnamed Christians who accepted Paul, who accepted Saul into Palm Vista Community Church, Damascus. Enter the disciples who rallied behind Saul and protected him against, oh, his newly made enemies, and there were a lot of them, even helping Saul to escape by lowering him in a basket through a hole in the wall as he fled for his own life. Enter Barnabas, who came to Saul's defense when the disciples in Jerusalem wanting nothing to do with Saul. Oh, the memories of this man ravaging the church in Jerusalem was just too much. They couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. Oh, but Barnabas entered the brothers in Jerusalem who came to Paul's aid and sent him off to Caesarea and Tarsus, away from Jerusalem before he is killed. When we read this text, we read this story, I want you to ask, will I be that Ananias? Will I be that Barnabas? Oh, friends, will you be those unnamed Christians who welcomes, who befriends, who defends the Sauls as they come into the church? 
Will you help them in their conversion from Saul, their pre-conversion state, to Saul, their post-conversion life, and their call in Christ Jesus? Will you be the one to follow them up? Church, this is part of our commission as believers. You know what? It takes courage. It takes guts. It takes faith. It takes listening to and obeying Jesus Christ. Oh, I find the story of Ananias to be remarkable and so inspirational. And we're to take note. Let's let's just walk this through carefully. Ananias receives a vision, a vision of the risen Lord, just like Saul had received one, right? But now, listen to Ananias' response. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Ananias is ready. He's responsive. It reminds me a lot of the prophet Isaiah when he too received a vision of the heavenly enthroned Lord. What did he say? Here I am. Send me. And that was Ananias' posture. And so Ananias is told, go visit the renowned terrorist. I'll give you instructions via Google Maps. Follow me. And I want you to do this, Ananias. I want you to pray for him that his sight might be restored. Do you realize what Christ is saying to Ananias? He's essentially saying, Ananias, I want you to go to this former terrorist. And I want you to trust me for a miracle. And by the way, I also gave Saul a vision while he's praying. And by the way, he's also expecting you to come, Ananias. And he's also expecting that he will be healed. (laughs) No pressure, right? Wow, Ananias obeys. But naturally, he's hesitant. He's heard the terrifying reports of of this man, Saul. His reputation preceded him. I mean, think about it. What's going through Ananias' mind right here? He's probably wondering, is this guy like remotely safe? And I'm thinking this social distancing is a pretty good idea right now when it comes to this man. Furthermore, do I really want him to be healed? I mean, think about it. Do I really want him to regain his sight? That he would see me and identify me as a Christian, as a follower of the way? This sounds like a suicide mission. In church, sometimes it can feel that way. As we reach out, it certainly takes death to self, does it not? And it takes a lot of faith. And Ananias demonstrates an amazing faith. He goes and finds Saul. He lays hands on him. But listen to how he addresses Saul. Oh, it's beautiful. It's stunning. Brother Saul. Could you do that? Would you do that based on what you knew? Ananias includes Saul as part of his spiritual family. And Jesus kindly confirms Saul's new identity and family by opening Saul's eyes, by filling him with the Holy Spirit, and then baptizing him. Oh, the challenges continued, did they not? And so would the concerns of believers who weren't quite ready to accept Saul into their ranks. But thank God for Ananias, for the believers in Damascus, who saw the transformed man, oh, who received his message and believed. 
Thank God for the Barnabases who saw the grace of God in Saul and put aside his own fears and acted as Saul's advocate, as Saul's true friend. Here's the point. When Jesus converts an individual, the whole church is involved. It takes a church of converted Christians to witness, to embrace, to follow up, and to send out those Christ saves. We're going to see this again and again in the book of Acts. And when this happens, oh, something amazing happens. Listen again to this wonderful summary statement in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort, the encouragement that is of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Oh, I love that description. What, what are we reading here? We're reading of gospel growth. We're reading about beauty from ashes. We're reading about a barren stump becoming fruitful and green. We're reading about transforming grace. That's what happens when Saul's become Paul's. When enemies become allies in Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. And when this happens, oh, the whole church is transformed. This is a story for the ages. It's also a story for today. Because Jesus is the same Jesus today. In closing, just yesterday, I read a prayer after I finished this sermon. I don't think it's coincidence. It was from the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. It was a prayer for a Saudi woman named Fatima. As a woman in Saudi Arabia who lives in one of the most restrictive Muslim nations in the world. This is a lady who had little opportunity, if any, to hear about Jesus, let alone even get out of her own home. But that's no problem for Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to Fatima. Jesus came to her. And in a vision, in a dream, he said, Fatima, follow me. And that was the beginning of a story of transformation. And so Fatima flooded with a peace she never knew. Started wondering, are there any other Saudi believers whom I can speak with? Has this Jesus revealed himself to others in the way that he has revealed himself to me? And then we read these words, I read these words in the prayer journal. Not mine, but what I read. Quote, she found out and discovered that she was not the only one who had experienced transformation. Church, it's happening. It's happening in Saudi Arabia. I believe it's happening not just to women stuck in their homes in Saudi Arabia during Ramadan, but to people in our very neighborhoods, to people in our sphere of influence. Those, yes, who may be stuck at home because of COVID-19, by which Jesus is continuing to pursue, prod in his patient mercy to bring them to a saving knowledge of him. Oh, Jesus is still prodding. Jesus is still pursuing. He's still revealing himself in his sovereign mercy, 
even to the most unlikely of candidates in our minds, even those that we might consider enemies of the gospel. Are we ready, church, to share the good news? Are we ready to follow up? Are we ready to embrace these individuals and new believers and make their conversion complete as they enter the church to value them, to welcome them in, to embrace them and to enfold them into our fellowship and then one day send them out for other great gospel conquests. Oh, may it be because of Christ transforming power and grace at work within us. Jesus alone can transform even his greatest enemies into his gospel servants. He did it with Saul. If you're a Christian, he's done it with you. And he's not done yet. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings.